We have the opportunity tonight to dig into God's Word once again. We thank the Lord each and every Lord's Day for the opportunity to open God's Word and submit to its truths. And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're in the second part of a multi-part series on the subject, Prepare to Meet Your Enemy. Prepare to meet your enemy. This section of Ephesians 6 has been called various things. I've chosen the title, Prepare to Meet Your Enemy, because it's talking about, primarily it seems, that we are to do mortal combat with the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. For instance, if you were to read along with me verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Scripture speaks there of rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. It talks about spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And also in verse 16 of Ephesians 6, it says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, if you were able to read those words or to understand those concepts in any other venue than a Sunday worship service, in which words and phrases like this are given, not wrestling against flesh and blood, uh, wrestling rather against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over the present darkness, spiritual forces in heavenly places, flaming darts of the evil one, you might assume we were talking about going to a movie, right? You might assume that we were reading a novel, Something regarding this galactic battle of superpowers. And yet, as I said last time, there are many, many people, including, sadly, tragically, even professing Christians, who might say, some of them under their breath, and some of them, frankly, maybe even out loud, I don't believe in Satan. I don't believe that he exists. I don't believe in a personal devil. I don't assume any of that's true. I think we're just battling against uh, our own selves and against others. The spiritual warfare that we should be battling is just simply what we're dealing with in our own hearts. Uh, we don't have anybody else to battle against. There is no devil. There are no demon forces. There are no rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces flaming darts that we have to extinguish. And yet, we are in a worship service. 
we are professing Christians as here we sit. And there are those spiritual forces in the world because the Word of God says that there are. And we submit ourselves to the Word of God. And we say, as professing Christians and lovers of the Bible, that these things are for our instruction. They are for our education. They are even more so. They are for our embattlements against these spiritual forces. We are to be aware of them. And you remember last time, I gave you ten passages, and only ten. Actually, I threw in an eleventh one, 1 Corinthians 11.19. But I gave you first ten passages, and they could be multiplied more and more from a message from tonight or next time. It could be a multi-part series just on Satanology, the doctrine of the devil. We looked at 1 Peter 5.8. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 3.5, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, 1 Timothy 4.1-3, 2 Timothy 2.26, 1 John 4.1-3, 1 John 5.19, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we looked at all of those passages because... We have to, sad to say, remind people in the church world, no less, that Satan does exist, that he is real, and that he is a mortal enemy. He is a desperate foe. And Satan, being real, has an agenda. And his agenda is to destroy the faith of Christians. He is real, he's personal, that is, he is a person. He is all about doing wickedness and evil. He's all about the destruction of the livelihood of the Christian. He's all about doing whatever he could to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they will never see the glorious light of the gospel. We saw that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, didn't we? And Satan, the devil... The evil one, variously named in our Bibles, if he's anything, he's all about confusing us as Christians, lying to us, deceiving us, challenging us by our own sinfulness, our remaining sin. He'll do anything and everything he can to make sure that we are not effective in living the Christian life. That we would be defeated, discouraged. That we would be downcast and despondent. And because of that, I think it would be well for us tonight, even before we dig into the various words and phrases and every one of the elements of the armor of God that we have before us in verses 10 to 18 of Ephesians 6, I think it would be well for us to know some of the practicalities of the devices of Satan. You remember, and maybe as an introduction we could turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We went through it last time, but some of you who are here tonight were not there last Sunday night. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaks about what he calls there in verse 11 the designs of Satan. 
noemata, the, the evil schemes of Satan. He says, in the context, by the way, of forgiving one another, and there was a man in the Corinthian church who needed to be forgiven. He'd apparently sinned in some way. We don't know if he was the man of 1 Corinthians 5. He may be the one who had sinned egregiously and sexually, and the church was doing nothing about it. If this is that same man, he's repented. He wants to be reaffirmed with the love of the congregation. The majority of the congregation has inflicted the punishment of discipline upon him, as well they should because of his sin. He has repented of that. And now Paul challenges the Corinthians to forgive him and to reaffirm their love for him. And he says, for instance, in verse 9, For this is why I wrote that I might test you, test you in the matter of forgiveness, and know whether or not you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, Paul says, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, uh, the person I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, in the sense that I want to be your model, your example of being a forgiving person. And I want you, too, to live the lifestyle of forgiveness yourselves. So I'm going to test you to see whether or not you're willing to forgive this man. And then he says, very interestingly, so that, or in order that, verse 11, we would not be outwitted by Satan. And you know that, that for me, signals that Satan, if he could... If he's allowed to, by God's providence, tempt Christians to be unforgiving, outwitting them in some way to make them think that maybe someone's sin is so serious, so egregious, that they have gone past the concept of forgiveness. Or he might try to outwit them the other way, that we are so forgiving, quote-unquote, that we're allowing sin in the camp because everybody ought to be so forgiving. You see how he could go poles apart in either direction? And so Paul says, we do not, we must not, we cannot be outwitted by Satan. And then he says this, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Some of your translations may say schemes. Either way, good translations... And what they teach us is that Satan is alive and well on planet earth, and he's the god of this world, small g, and yet what he does is he tempts the church, both individually and collectively, in whatever way that he can ply his trade to confuse and disorient and debilitate Christians against even sometimes their knowledge and their understanding of the word of God which means that he is a formidable foe. And that's what Paul tells us here. Turn over to chapter 11. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about false apostles, those who tried to enter into the Corinthian church and did so, and were actually laying charges against the apostle Paul himself. And he says in verse 13 of chapter 11, For such men, these men who've come into the church as false apostles, they are such false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves, that's a key verb there, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. 
And no wonder, Paul says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In other words, they'll receive their just punishment. Now, did you notice a couple of things that he says here? They're deceitful workmen, verse 13. They disguise themselves, themselves, and even Satan disguise, disguises himself as an angel of light. And so he says, therefore, it's no surprise that his servants do likewise. And they attempt to deceive. They want to make you think they're true apostles. They want to make you think that they're right teachers that they're holy and godly teachers, and yet they are deceiving others. They're disguising themselves. They're deceitful workmen. And yet they are in, apparently, positions of leadership in the church, or at least are attempting to be so. Just these passages alone, and we talked about many others last time, that speak to the reality of what Satan is attempting to do to foster errant teaching in the church and to present men who are otherwise false teachers, deceitful workmen, and he wants them to be accepted in the fellowship. And so they are very cunning, very deceitful. They disguise themselves very well, including even disguising themselves as angels of light. Not darkness, but light. Beloved, Satan is real. And he's all about destroying our faith. And tonight I thought it would be good for us to take some of these satanic temptations. Because if Paul says in chapter 2 that we are not ignorant of his schemes, we might well arm ourselves with ways that Satan historically has attempted to not only infiltrate the church, but to infiltrate even the minds by way of temptation, Christian believers, so that he can deceive us into being ineffective for Christ. And what I have done for my own Christian life over the years has been to read and reread some many, many classic works about Satan and his minions, and what they do, and how they do it. And one of those that I have been so profited by through the years, and I've actually brought it up here to the pulpit so that I could show you, is a book by an old Puritan named Thomas Brooks called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Now that is a classic Puritan title. You don't even want to know the subtitle, because it's about four times as long as this title. And the Banner of Truth Trust, which is a wonderful Christian publisher, has published these little Puritan paperbacks, sort of uh, extracting the best of the works of these men. And this particular volume of mine is dog-eared. I've had to use some scotch tape. It's falling apart. Uh, some of the pages are about to fall out. And this has been a wonderful guide to me about understanding the Scripture, especially as it relates to the precious remedies that we have in the Word of God that are going to arm us against the devices of Satan. Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And I have profited from this, and some of that which I've read has made its way through my pen 
to my sermon notes so that I can take you through some of these various satanic temptations and God's remedies for them. Now, I only have time to give you three tonight. This particular book gives many, many, many more. And you're in for a wonderful journey if you were to pick up this volume and begin reading. Now, I know that sometimes the Puritans, being as wordy as they are, with sometimes long and complex sentences, and having written this in the 1600s, is a bit daunting for Christians. So what I did in this particular volume is that when I read of a particular satanic device and what God's precious remedy would be against that device, I just simply in the margins wrote out in my own handwriting uh, a, a rewritten version of what that temptation is in sort of uh, 20th century or 21st century language, and then what the remedies are. So I just sort of rewrote his outline for him. And I wanted to present a couple of these to you tonight, three to be exact. The, the, the practicalities, we could say, of satanic temptation and God's precious remedies. In other words, we could ask ourselves a series of questions. How may we be helped in both our understanding and our guarding against satanic temptation? That's practical. Very practical. Are there some ways that Satan generally works in tempting believers to sin? I believe there are. Another question, might there be some devices that he keeps in his arsenal in order to fire at us like these flaming darts, these flaming missiles to destroy us? And I believe there are. And if we have these flaming missiles from Satan pointed directly at our Christian hearts, what resources do we have from the Lord to extinguish those flaming darts? Now, I know that as we get into Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be talking about the various aspects of the armament against Satan's devices. But I think there are some in other places in our Bibles that will help us along the way so that as we study these tonight, I think we'll be better prepared when we actually get into the text of Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll go with three of these tonight. And the first one is this. Number one. Number one. It seems to me, a la the pen of Thomas Brooks, that the first temptation is this. Satan will tempt you to sin by first deceiving you. Sounds pretty reasonable and pretty basic, but it is complex underneath the surface. Satan will tempt you to sin by first deceiving you. What do I mean by that? Well, first, one of Satan's primary tools to deceive believers is in thinking that sin is something other than what it truly is. Sin. And we often are tempted by Satan to see sin for something other than it is. He, he labels it something other than sin, something with a far less threatening and more desirable label. In other words, he deceives us. We might call it the bait-and-switch technique. The bait-and-switch technique. And I want you to see, first of all, in your Bibles, all the way back into Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to go in many places in the Word of God tonight for us to see how Satan's devices are made against us and how we have precious remedies from God's Word against those devices. And chapter 3 is a great place to start in Genesis because it's the first reference to the serpent, to the devil, Satan himself. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now stop there. He's called the serpent. All right? And in this serpentine temptation of the evil one, people always ask me, all right, this is Genesis 3. We've got the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. And then he shows up. And they inevitably ask the question, where did he come from? When did he arrive on the scene? And my answer is, I have no idea. I don't know. The Bible doesn't particularly go into the story other than the fact that in this garden, the Garden of Eden, the serpent is more crafty, which implies, of course, that he has an evil connotation to his life, to his temptations. And surely it says that very thing. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Somehow, in the grand providence of God and in the purposes of uh, mysterious providence, I might add, Satan shows up. Where he came from, what happened, is not altogether told us in specific from the Word of God. I know in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, for instance, it talks about uh, Satan falling from the sky, and he took what appears to be a third of the angels with him, and uh, those angels became those despicable beasts, the minions of Satan, the, the devil worshipers, we might say. But we don't know exactly when that occurred. Uh, we don't know any of those details. That's generally what theologians call uh, uh, theodicy, the origin of evil. And we don't know a lot of the answers to the questions, and apparently the Lord did not want us to know all of the answers to those questions, or He would have revealed more of that to us. But at least here in Genesis 3, it says, He said to the woman, did the serpent, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And of course, that's a reference back to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, which says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then, of course, the text goes on to say that, Man was alone, Adam was alone, there was no helper suitable for him, and then the Lord God created out of one of Adam's rib, uh, ribs the woman, and somewhere after that, of course, at the end of chapter 2, we find that Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, who are real persons, historical persons, they did exist, they did live, and they lived in the Garden of Eden, that perfect place, with that one prohibition from God, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And in chapter 3, we know the very first thing about the very first human beings relative to this, this serpent, this serpent being, is that he is crafty and he's attempting to tempt them to sin. And that's what he's done ever since. That's his job. That's his profession. That's his desire. And what he says to the woman is incredible. Because what he says to her immediately is this, Did God say which immediately brings doubt on God's Word, right? 
immediately. We know he's crafty enough to somehow, in this context, with a perfect man and a perfect woman, they, they were apparently created not with the appearance of age, but with actual age of some kind, or at least the appearance of age. They were mature adults. Uh, they weren't young children uh, in the midst of this uh, cunning serpent. They, they were having all their wits about them. You would assume that they were, in a sense, as we would say, fully grown man and woman, and they're in the garden, and God has told them, this is the one thing you can't do in the midst of all the things that you can do, and the serpent distorts doubts God's word from the very beginning. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And then verse 4, but... Notice the contrast. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. And he moves from doubting God's word, or maybe even distorting God's word with his first comment, to an outright denial of God's word. God says, You shall surely die. And Satan, this serpent, says what? You shall surely not die. There's such hubris there. Arrogance. Going against the expressed word of God. You will not surely die. And then verse 5. To an outright denunciation of God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I think right here in the very first portions of our Bibles, you have this Satanology, this doctrine of Satan that says if Satan can't get us to distort or doubt God's Word, then he'll at least attempt to tempt us to deny or even denounce God's Word itself. You say, well, I wouldn't fall for that. Never. I, I wouldn't denounce God's word if I if I knew what it said I'd stick to what it says I wouldn't fall for that Satan can't get me to deny his word or even denounce God himself but remember I said that there's this pendulum swing to Satan's deceptions I mean if he knows we are too strong spiritually to doubt or deny or denounce God and his word then he'll surely try to deceive us by painting over sin with virtues colors that's what he'll do. I mean, if he can make us think that our sinful thoughts, our actions are actually honorable and right, then we've been deceived and we could therefore call it bait and switch. If he can paint over sin's overreach into our lives with the colors of virtue, then we'll be more easily deceived. He knows that if he can get us to see sin for less than what it truly is, even to see it as virtuous will be more easily led into sin. In this particular book by Thomas Brooks, he says this, quote, Satan knows that if he should present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would rather fly from it than yield to it. And so he presents it to us, not in its true colors, but painted over with the name virtue, that we may be more easily overcome by it. 
unquote. You say, what are some of those examples? Well, I started thinking through some of those examples, and I remember. I remember back in the ministry in Little Rock, there was a particular man in our church who was fired, let go, by one of his employers because he would not stop witnessing to others while he was supposed to be working. Now, wouldn't you assume that that's a grand temptation of Satan? Because if you have a work responsibility and if you're receiving wages from that work and if you're supposed to be doing an honest day's work for an honest day's wage and if you know that your boss is telling you do your work and don't evangelize others while you're supposed to be working and yet Satan was tempting this young man to say that souls are more important than work, souls are more important than you doing what you have been paid to do, you should talk about Christ and not do any work and he was falling endlessly in that temptation and he was ultimately and finally let go that would be a prime example can you hear Satan's echoing of the temptation in your ear you should talk to so and so about Christ you should witness to that that fellow He, he needs you to tell him about the Lord while at the same time you're supposed to be working and you're supposed to be doing what's right And you might be smart enough to figure out that if you are supposed to be evangelizing those around you, then take the brother out to lunch somewhere on your own time and on his own time, right? That would be an example. Here's another, and I've tragically heard this in the counseling room more times than I would want. Someone might say something like this, well, since God wants me first and foremost to be happy and fulfilled in life, and because I'm in an unhappy marriage then God wouldn't possibly want me in this bad marriage, so it's better for me to divorce than to be in a bad marriage. That's another temptation. We could go on and on with those. What Satan is all about is to to gloss over the, the sin issues and paint them instead with virtue's colors. And the palette looks so good with all those pristine colors and their pastel and they look so good and we are utterly baited and switched. And when we bounce with our lips upon that hook and that hook is pulled, we realized I've been had. What's our biblical defense to that kind of temptation? Number one, number one, here's a precious remedy against that particular device of Satan recognize that sin, regardless of how it's presented to you, is still sin. So pray for discernment. Pray for discernment. Ask the Lord, Lord, give me discernment so that I'm not seduced. I mean, if Satan is all about tempting me by deception, then Lord, give me discernment so that I am not deceived by his wiles, by his cunning, by his schemes. Look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 26. I wish we had time to go through a number of passages we don't uh, regarding how Satan deceives us. The Bible is replete with examples, but look at Proverbs 26. Proverbs chapter 26. And, And listen to how even... The writer to Proverbs, Solomon here, speaking of this matter of glazing or covering over something to make it not look as bad as as it is. Proverbs 26, verse 23. 
like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. I mean, it looks good. looks good on the outside. But in the inside, it's lips from an evil heart. Verse 24, whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. I mean, it sounds so good. And it could come from another person, or it could come from a billboard, or it could come from a radio ad, or it could come from a television commercial, because they're always attempting to deceive you to do something. I was watching a commercial just the other day, and it was showing this this white automobile that had all of the badges and logos taken off of it. And they were trying to tell all of these people who were standing around this vehicle all the great features of it. And they said, oh, what do you think this vehicle is? And someone says, well, it's a Lexus or it's a, it's a, a BMW or uh, no, no, it's a Chevrolet Malibu. Oh, and everybody's shocked. And then they drive this vehicle out to the center stage and uh, they say, and what might you think this car would cost? Well, if I know it's a Chevy Malibu, uh, I, I know it's probably not as expensive as, as expensive as one of those others that I mentioned. And so, oh, it's got to be about 80000 or 60000 or 40000 And the guy says, no, this one starts at 22005 And then in the small print, because the FCC will uh, slap them on the wrist, it says about that particular car, that it's not the car that starts at 22.5. But you have to read a little bit of the fine print. It's a bait and switch. And how many people would want to go out and say, hey, I want that kind of car. And then you go to the car place and they say, this is that exact car. And you want to plop down your 22.5. And he says, no, I'm sorry, this one is 36.5, which is exactly the car that was listed in that commercial. It's just a trivial example, but this is, this is the kind of thing that's overlaid with gold. And on the inside, it is rusty, and you're going to get poisoned if you partake. Satan will disguise himself as an angel of light. Did we not just read that? And you know, even what Satan did back in the garden, when he tempted Eve with that particular forbidden fruit, and she saw it, the Bible says, and that she saw that it was what? It was a delight to the what? To the eyes. That it was, what else? Delight to the eyes, come on. Good for food. And that it was desirable to make one wise. So it was delight to the eyes, it was a delight to the flesh, and it was desirable to make one wise. He knew the temptation points, and he knew and he knows from history, because 1 John two fifteen to 17 says, Do not love the world, the things in the world, for the love of what? You better turn there. You better turn there. 1 John, this is, a, this is an excellent opportunity 
to learn a little Satanology. 1 John 2, 15-17 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... Notice this and think back to your Bibles in Genesis 3. The desires of the flesh... Okay, that's exactly what Satan was tempting even the beginning. The lust of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the lust of the eyes and pride in possessions. Or the idea of Genesis 3, desirable to make one wise. Those might be three chief things that Satan does when he wants to deceive the lust of our eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Pride in possessions. Proverbs 5.8 says this, Keep your way far from her, Lady Folly, and do not go near the door of her house. Don't be deceived. Proverbs 20, verse 17, Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. I mean, Satan will do everything he can to deceive us into thinking that that bread is sweet. Partake of it. The first part of Proverbs 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, all of those chapters talk about several different kinds of temptations, and one of them chiefly is sexual temptation. And at every one of those chapters, you can point to verses that speak of the deception of seeing that kind of sin, sexual sin, as not as bad as it is, or sweet to the touch, or sweet to the eyes, and you'll be deceived. Because in the end, it's as bitter as wormwood. That's what Satan does. Brooks says this, Thomas Brooks, when the poison of asps stings a man, it first tickles him, so as to make him laugh till the poison, little by little, gets to the heart and then pains him more than it ever delighted him. Isn't that what deception does? We're lured into it and it's delightful and it tickles us and it seems so wonderful and so pleasurable until the poison works itself in and through our souls until it's Bittersweet. Keep the greatest distance between yourself and sin because deception is real. Real. Recognize that sin, no matter how virtuous it may be painted, is still sin. He says the most dangerous vermin is too often to be found under the fairest and sweetest flowers. The fairest glove is often drawn upon the foulest hand and the richest robes are often put upon the filthiest bodies. Just just cover it over. Just deceive me. Deceive my eyes. Deceive my flesh, my pride. And recognize, beloved, that sin is never more seductive and destructive than when it appears most hidden. Ask God to reveal it to you. Be discerning. Ask for grace, insight, discernment when sin is at the door. You you may not know it's at the door. 
You may hear the knock. You look through the keyhole. You don't see anything frightening and arresting, but you're not sure, and then you're deceived both probably through the eye gate and the ear gate, and you give in, and then you're trapped. When sin is least felt, it is most powerful. So often when we think sin has been destroyed, it's merely out of sight. Sin's strategy is to induce a false sense of security as a prelude to a surprise attack. Sin is always at work in the heart. A temporary lull in its assaults means not that it is dead, but that it is very much alive. It's so easy in a sense, sometimes to be deceived because it looks virtuous, it looks good, it looks right, it looks righteous. Sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. Don't forget, just before the shark attack, he smiles. True? Proverbs 24 7 and 8 say this, Wisdom is too high for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. He who plans to do evil, men will call him a schemer. And that's what Satan is. He's a schemer. He's a schemer. He does everything he can to deceive. That's number one. Number two. Number two. Satan tempts believers to sin by trivializing and minimizing sin and its consequences. I mean... In this first instance, he wants to paint over sin with virtue's colors. It's rusty on the inside, but he overlays it with gold or silver on the outside. And it's so alluring that we fall for the temptation. It's a bait and switch. But if he can't get us to sin in that way, then secondly, he tempts believers to sin by trivializing or minimizing the sin and its consequences. He makes us believe that sin is simply not as serious as it is. And as I showed you in Genesis 3, when it began in the garden, it was as if Satan were saying, Oh, come on, Eve. It's just a little piece of fruit. Don't worry about it. God's keeping something from you. He doesn't want you to know good and evil. And that was only partly right. Of course God did not want them to experientially know evil, right? Of course He wanted to keep them from it. But it wasn't because He was keeping something from them because He wanted to keep good from them. He wanted to protect them. And Satan deceived them into thinking that God is withholding good from you. He's holding back all that is right and good and best. And if he can't get you to do that, then he's going to say something like this, Oh, Eve, come on, take the fruit. It's not that bad. It's no big deal. Come on. You want to see how big a deal some what appear to be innocent sins, maybe even righteous acts are? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Saul. I mean, this seemed harmless enough. In 1 Samuel 13, you probably know this story well. 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. 
But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring burnt bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. But wait a minute. He's a king, not a priest, right? And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. I mean, he's almost saying, well, look, you you didn't come and and we were getting ready to battle the Philistines and and you weren't coming and and we needed to to obtain the favor of the Lord. And because the priest wasn't around, uh, there was no prophet to help. We, we, We were about to be destroyed. And so I saw the king decided that I would force myself and offer the burnt offering, which is something that he and others were commanded not to do because that's not your role. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And I can, I can just hear it now. The siren sound of Satan. Come on, Saul. You want the favor of the Lord, don't you? Go ahead and offer the burnt offering. Somebody's got to do it. You're in charge. You're the man. Don't you want the Lord's blessing? You don't want to go in battle without the favor of the Lord. Look, it's a small thing. So he did what he did. And among other things, this is the reason his kingdom was taken away. Remember Uzzah in 2 Samuel? He wanted to help kind of steady the ark. And what happened to him? Killed in an instant. And I can imagine Satan in the background saying, now that's not fair. He was actually trying to to steady the ark. He was trying to do a good thing. I mean, look, this is a trivial thing for which you killed him, God? How about Achan? Achan in Joshua 7.1. You remember that? Achan just took a little bit of the booty. Just a little. And what happened? God says, look, you've got to get rid of everything that's under the ban. And he took just a little for himself. And he hid it under his tent, probably in the ground under his tent. And there were men who died in battle, Israelites, because of that sin. They died because of what appeared to be this little trivial, minimizing sin of Achan. And not only did those men die in battle, but when God made Joshua and others find out exactly who it was, and it came to be recognized as Achan, he confessed... Isn't that good enough? 
He said, yes, it was me. And he showed them, and he gave them the booty. And what did God tell the elders to do? And it wasn't just Achan. It was his family. Now there I can hear someone say, that's not fair. His wife didn't do anything. And certainly, even if she was a co-conspirator, his children didn't do anything. And yet, what was God saying by such an act? Sin is serious. Even that which people assume to be trivial and minimal. I mean, I can hear it now. There are thousands and thousands of Israelites. And you mean to tell me that there were men who died in battle and didn't receive the victory because God's hand had been removed because of this one act of this one man with a little bit of the cash in his tent. God, that seems pretty petty. Pretty trivial. Pretty minimal, if you ask me. And yet, in all of those examples, Saul... And Uzzah and Achan, we have to keep in mind that all sin, every sin, was what put Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how serious it is. No no trivial sins. No trivial sins in my life. No minimal sins in my life if they are sins that helped put Jesus Christ on the cross for which he died. That makes it pretty serious. And the least sin has to be dealt with so that we can recognize and deal with greater sins. And remember that sin may appear initially as trivial and minimal, but all sin, even little sins, can be heaped on other little sins, which can be heaped on other little sins, and for which they become great sins with great consequences. Brooks again says this, Sin is of such an encroaching nature. It creeps on the soul by degrees, step by step, till it has the soul to the very height of sin. It's the little foxes that spoil the vines. Just the little things. And if I, if I give way to the little sins, and if I become less aware of them, less cognizant of them, less discerning about them, then they give way to greater sins and greater sins to which then I ultimately say, what have I done? These are great sins. And they started with all of the little ones. They started with the little ones. And I can hear it now, Satan's strategy. No one will know. No one will know. No one cares. Come on. No one's around. That's why Numbers 32, 23b says, You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. I mean, because we can't guarantee that one sin will not give way to another, and then another, and then another, and then you'll be powerless to withstand even the greater sins. Fight the little ones. Deal with the little ones. And then you could be more able to deal with the bigger ones. A little temptation leads to a little sin, which leads to bigger sins, which lead to greater consequences, and the little sins are ultimately just as dishonoring to God as the bigger sins. Do we forget David's sin with Bathsheba? I mean, it started as what appeared to be just a casual glance. 
That's all it was. And then didn't it lead then to deception and fraud and then even to murder and adultery? And it even led to the idea of even greater sins later for which those sins dogged David's house until the day he died. You say, but he was a man after God's own heart. Yes, but he was a man with a feet of clay. And he had sins. And he let little sins at time, at times encroach upon his life to where he wasn't cognizant. He wasn't vigilant. He wasn't aware. And then those sins arose and smote him with great consequences. What's God's answer? Matthew 5, 29 to 30. Here's a remedy for this second temptation. Here's a remedy about trivializing and minimizing sin. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 29 to 30, if your right hand makes you stumble, what? Yeah, just tear it out. Rip it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of your parts, the parts of your body to perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Deal with the offending agent. And look at all the resources that God has given you to fight it. That's what I tell folks in in counseling and discipleship all the time. You've got so many resources. First of all, you have the Word of God. You also have the Spirit of God. And you have the people of God. I mean, those are forces for which you can be formidably fighting against the fighter of your soul. You can, you can say to Satan, in a sense, even though I don't advocate talking directly to him, but you can say in the fight of your life against this evil one, I have the Word of God, and I have the people of God, and I have the Spirit of God, and I shall not do this thing because I will rely on that Word, and I will rely on those people, and I will rely on the Spirit so that I may not sin against you. God, I need all of those resources. Remember Joseph when he fled? He just ran right out of there. And again, if you've got a a naysayer in the bunch, they say, yeah, he ran right out of his jacket and she used it against him and he landed in prison. Yes, but the Bible also says, and the Lord was with Joseph. And in whatever he did, he prospered. And even when he was in prison, he was given major, excellent responsibilities. You say, that's not a fair exchange. That's not a fair exchange. I don't want to be in prison. It was God's providence. And sometimes when you do what is right, you'll suffer for it. Everyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. God doesn't promise that when you are vigilant about the temptation to sin and you stand away from it and you avoid it, that everything is going to be hearts and flowers. Sometimes when you do right, you'll suffer for it. 1 Peter chapter 2. And when you suffer for it, God will give you grace. It's better to fight against sin and to receive grace and mercy than to assume that you're not going to fight sin because it's somewhat trivial and minimal and then you find yourself without grace and mercy and you find yourself compromising at small incremental levels until you're falling to the big ones. 
Beloved, don't think for one minute that you can handle it. Readily admit to yourself and everyone else, I can't handle it on my own. I need help. I need the Word. I need the people of God. I need the Spirit of God. I need people helping me at all times. Brooks says again, little sins often slide into the soul and breed and work secretly and undiscernibly in the soul till they come to be so strong as to trample upon the soul and to cut the throat of the soul. Vivid language. And a little sin without a great deal of mercy will damn a man. Even that that little sin. Because there's no mercy of God there to deal even with the little sins. Sin lies so camouflaged in the darkness of the mind, in the indisposition of the will, and in the worldliness of the affections that no eye can discover it. The best of our wisdom is but to look out for its first appearances. I mean, when it's first there, cut it off at the root. Colossians 3, 5. Kill it. Mortify it. Put it to death. That which is earthly in you. Every sin, no matter how trivial or minimal, Satan tries to make it seem as though it's no big deal. It's no big deal. And yet Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. So, Satan will tempt believers to sin by deception. He'll tempt believers to sin by minimizing and trivializing sin and its consequences. And thirdly, Satan will tempt believers by emphasizing their sin and downplaying their virtues. That's what he does. He tempts believers by emphasizing their sin and downplaying their virtues. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, Satan, he's the master accuser. And he accuses believers of such sin that you'll begin to even doubt your salvation and that there must be no hope for you. Right? Have you ever experienced that? You're struggling. You're spiritually downtrodden, downcast, despondent. And those barking sounds of Satan are just around the corner. And sometimes they're quite faint and then sometimes they're shockingly loud. And he says, how can you be a Christian with those kinds of sins in your life? Can't be. God doesn't have rebels for sons. Satan wants you to doubt the very reality of your salvation. He wants to tempt you to think that all you have in your life is sin. And that you don't have any virtues. Another Puritan, Thomas Watson, said it like this. Depression clothes the mind in sable. It puts a Christian out of tune so that he is not fit for prayer or praise. Lute strings will not sound when wet, nor can one under the power of depression make melody in his heart to the Lord. When the mind is troubled, it is unfit to go about work. Depression disturbs reason and weakens faith. Satan works much on this tempter. 
It is the bath of the devil. He bathes himself with delight in such a person, in a depressed person. Through the black spectacles of depression, everything appears black. When a Christian looks upon sin, he says, This devil will devour me. When he looks upon ordinances, these will serve to increase his guilt. When he looks upon affliction, the gulf will swallow him. Depression creates fears in the mind. It excites jealousies and contempts. And somebody says, I'm going to give up. This, this rush of satanic temptation rolls over me and I have no answer. I must not be a Christian. I must not know the Lord. I'm too depressed even to go on living. And at that point, for the true Christian, Satan has them right where he wants them. Defeated, discouraged, downcast, not ebullient in his spirit, not effervescent, not seeing the grace of God, not calling upon the mercy of Christ, not confessing sin and calling sin what it is and calling depression the dark night of the soul and acknowledging the truth of it but also acknowledging the sweet person of Jesus and his death on the cross and that's what Satan doesn't want you to do he'll attempt to convince you that your sin is so grievous before God that you ought to just give up just give up God's left you for dead There's a list in the Bible, Satan's accusation of the adultery of David, Satan's accusation of the pride of Hezekiah, Satan's accusation of the impatience of Job, Satan's accusation of the drunkenness of Noah, the denials of Peter, and on and on it goes. And if he can't trivialize or minimize your sin, and if he can't deceive you with the bait and switch, then he'll attempt to convince you that your sins so outweigh your virtues that you're outside of God's grace, you're unable to please God, you might as well just give up. Ever been there? It's a dark, dark place. So dark. But there is gospel light for those who are truly Christians. There's gospel light there. You say, where? I don't see it. It might be faint in your perception, but it's there. It's there. Satan says, where is your God now? When you need Him most, Christian, where is He? His grace is not sufficient for you. You're too far gone. Here's your answer. Here's your answer. Number one, if you are truly saved, God is present with you. He's there. You may not readily perceive him as being there, but he is there. And as I said this morning, when you ask him for bread, he won't give you a stone. He loves to give good gifts to his children. He wants you to be plucked out of that miry bog. How does he do that? By your repentance, by your turning. That was what happened in the denials of Peter, right? And in those denials, and shortly after them, Peter himself turned, didn't he? That's the word for repentance. 
And then came the delight of Pentecost and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And also, did not Jesus say to and about Peter, I have what? Prayed for you. That when you have turned, when you've repented, you shall strengthen your brothers. Yes, it can be depression, the dark night of the soul, it can be debilitating, but it doesn't have to be forever. It doesn't have to be forever. Repentance, my friends, is a virtue. It's a virtue. You say, anything regarding sin is a virtue? Yes, when you're repenting of it, when you're turning from it, when you're doubting God, when you're doubting His goodness, when you're doubting His grace and His mercy, when you say it isn't there, when you've followed right in line with Satan's ploys, don't, don't do it. Don't buy the lie. Satan may have, may have accused David, and surely he did. And David himself was despondent. But what did he say? Psalm 51. Psalm 32. If you're depressed, Christian person, read Psalm 32 tonight before you go to bed. Read Psalm 51. Ask God to make David's experience your experience. You say, well, the first part of it, I got you. But it's the second part. God, cleanse me. Cleanse me. Thank you for your forgiving love. God, your mercy, like Lamentations 3.23, it's like that dew every morning. Give me new morning mercies. Here's another way to fight against that third temptation. If Satan downplays our virtue, the Holy Spirit emphasizes it. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And what does the grace of God do? According to Titus, it, it, motivates, us. it motivates us. It, it goads us. It teaches us. It prods us to be godly. To renounce all ungodliness. And those things like depression and discouragement, the dark night of the soul, acknowledge it to God and ask for grace and mercy and wisdom. As one person said, God's corrections are our instructions. His lashes are lessons. His scourges are schoolmasters. His chastisements are advertisements. Acknowledge the truth that you've been in a dark place and ask for the kind of mercy that God loves to give His own. So, I wish we had the opportunity to go through the entire corpus of what Satan does. But enough about him. Enough about him. Let's go through Ephesians chapter 6 now and the remaining parts of this series and ask God to bring us the right armament for the day of battle. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Make us 
realize the the power, the incredible power that you possess far more than the, the power that Satan possesses. It's real. He is powerful. But he's not all powerful. He is present in our world as the God of this world. But he's not omnipresent. He is what Jesus said he is, John 8, a liar. And he's been a liar from the beginning. And his character is to be the father of lies. And we don't want to be ignorant of his schemes. Thank you for giving us tonight just three of them that allow us to know how he operates at times and your precious remedies against those satanic devices. May we learn far more as we look into the armor of God with which we can extinguish his flaming missiles. For your praise do we battle against the forces of this darkness. And might we glorify our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord of our lives, who wants us to succeed and who will grant us the victory through His victory on the cross. We pray in His name. Amen.